not growing, you die. Hughie's basically the, the youngest person I know. The status quo is unacceptable. It's his vision and his ability to explain his vision to you. Uh, you can't help but be swept up in it. Stasis is unacceptable. He really paved the road for all of this, and I'm just, I'll be forever indebted to him. Let's just start, see what happens. A friend of mine who, he says, you know, I'd like to nominate you for the Purpose Prize. The Purpose Prize uh, provides an, an award for, for people who, uh, in their encore careers, in their so-called retirement years, continue to do important things that are of value to the society. I think the whole notion of retirement years and the way we used to think about it, uh, you know, actually doesn't make any sense. If you don't use your, your talents, uh, your, your brains and your body, you will uh, go into atrophy. I quote, I often quote uh, Marion Wright Edelman, the president of the Children's Defense Fund. Service is the rent we pay for living. A long time ago, I made the decision not to be a squatter on the land, but to pay my rent. Well, hello, Herod. It's, as we begin today, I'd like to take you back 14 years to somewhere around the first week of June, uh, the year 2000. It was my uh, 50th birthday. I was in the passenger seat of our car. Patty was driving, and she was taking me to Geneseo to celebrate my birthday. And as we got to town, she pulled the car into the parking lot of Maple Leaf Lincoln Mercury. And there sitting in the middle of the parking lot was a brand new gold Mercury Sable. It had a sunroof, it had leather seats, it had heated seats one side and the other, you know, heat on one side, controller in two, two sections. It had all the bells and whistles you needed in a car in those days. And on top of it was a giant bow. And she said, happy birthday. Now what she had done is she'd gone out to the dealership and she'd shopped and she'd figured out what we wanted and she'd ordered it and she'd worked the deal and she'd signed the papers and she'd done everything except for one thing. And I'll tell you what that is later. But for right now, I want to come to this topic of bold crossings that we've been working our way through for the last, this is the fifth week in this series of sermons that Sean and I are engaging as we talk about a time of significant transition here at Heritage Church. In just a few weeks, we're going to be voting on Sean Cosson to be our next senior pastor, our next senior leader. The last weekend in April, if the vote is positive, uh, we'll be installing him formally as senior pastor, and he will step up into a new role, and I will step back. His role will be to lead our congregation. My role will be to support his leadership, and, and uh, after a brief sabbatical, I'll step in behind him to help make a difference in the local church, the national church, and even around the world to say, God's good and I'm not done yet. The question I want to engage with you today is what's your role? What's your role? Whether you're in Rock Island, whether you're in Bettendorf, whether you're at QC West, what part do you play? And I think we probably ought to begin by acknowledging a reality. There's an elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room is that some of you, I have heard, are not entirely thrilled by the 
decision that has been made for me to step back and to have Sean step forward. Some of you have been with us for 30, 35, maybe even 40 years. And uh, we have walked a long journey together. Some of you are far more recent, but our ministry in your life is significant enough that you're having a hard time imagining heritage without uh, John at the helm or without Patty teaching into your lives. And uh, I've heard that some of you are sad about it and that you're grieving about it. And I just want you to know that's okay. It's natural. It's normal. It's, it's, it's appropriate. I'm convinced that Sean is going to lead us into a, an era of even greater significance. But you and I are used to each other, and we've been around a long time, and we know the rhythms of ministry together, and you love us, and, and I get that you're sad. I will confess that even though this transition was one that I imagined and I helped plan and I initiated and it's something that I engendered. There's some times of melancholy in my life as well and some bittersweet moments as we walk through, well, this is the last time I do this as senior pastor. Well, this is the last time I do this as senior pastor. So the question I really want to ask you today is not about, you know, I'm not here to tell you don't grieve. But what I want to say is after you grieve, what's your role? After you grieve, what will you do? Now, if you're not grieving, hey. Oh, no. <laughs> if you're not grieving, the question of what's your role is still a significant question. And if you are, go ahead and grieve, but listen, because God has something for you today. We're going to go to the life of a guy named Caleb. We see him first in the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 13. You may remember the very first week in this series when Sean talked about how our decisions have consequences. And Moses took each of the 12 tribes of Israel, picked a leader from each of the 12 tribes, and he sent them into the promised land to scout it out, to see what it was like. And the leader of the tribe of Judah that he had picked to go represent the tribe, to scout it out and come back and convince his tribe was a guy named Caleb. Joshua was another guy, and there were 10 others. 12 guys go in the land, and they come back, and they say, this thing is everything God promised and more. Now, the everything God promised part was pretty cool. Cities that they could live in, and crops that they could harvest, and massive bunches of grapes, and they said it is indeed a land flowing with milk and honey, which, <coughs> which was sort of a, a generic way of saying it's all that. But it was more than that as well because what they discovered is that there were more fortified cities than they had anticipated and there were a whole bunch of people who didn't want to leave. And in fact, in the land, there were giants. There was a territory where giants lived. They were called the Anakim. And uh, the spies, 10 of them, said uh, we were like grasshoppers in their sight. The land devours the people who invade it. And it said the people's hearts melted with fear. Ten of the 12 spies said that. The people listened. And they began to moan and wail and complain. They said to Moses, it would have been better if we died in Egypt. 
can't go in and we won't go in and do that. And God basically said, well, if you don't want to go into the promised land, you don't have to. And he didn't make them. But what happened is one by one by one over the next 40 years, every adult who had rebelled died in the wilderness without ever experiencing the promise. There were two guys who survived that experience. There was Caleb and there was Joshua, the two of the 12 spies who said, we can do this. Joshua rises up in leadership. Uh, he replaces Moses. He helps lead the Israelites across the Jordan River. He helps them defeat Jericho. He's with them when they get defeated at, at, at Ai. He is then with them when they conquer Ai. He is then with them for the next five years as they make their way around the promised land, conquering territory after territory after territory. But you know, there was one place that they avoided. Remember the place where, 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 where the Anakim lived, the Anakites lived, the giants lived? It was hill country. Some translations say a mountain territory. And, and, and they made their way all around the promised land, but avoided the territory where the giants were. Must have always sat in the back of their mind. There are giants there. What are we going to do? And what we discover is that eventually Caleb says, you can count on me. Caleb basically disappears from the pages of Scripture for 45 years. You see him saying back in the days of, of the spying out the land, we can do this, and then he disappears until he's 85. And we're going to look at his life and see if we can come up with four things out of his life that will be lessons for us that we can apply in our lives. Look with me at Joshua 14. Now the people of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, at Kadesh Barnea about you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land. And I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my fellow Israelites who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt in fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. You ought to underline that phrase, I followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. That's a key phrase in Caleb's life. So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses while Israel moved about in the wilderness. So here I am today, 85 years old. Now I'm still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out and do battle as I was then. Now I'm not sure he was as strong, but he thought he was. And if you think you are, there's an amazing amount of things you can do. I mean, I'm not as strong today as I was 20 years ago, but you just keep going, right? And he says, I'm still as strong. I'm ready to do battle. Verse 12. Now give me this hill country. Some translations say, give me the mountain. Give me the mountain. This is where the giants live. This is what we've been avoiding. Give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and that their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. Then Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave him Hebron as his inheritance. So Hebron has belonged to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, ever since because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. Hebron used to be called Kiriath Arba, after Arba, who was the greatest man among the Anakites. Then, and not until then, when they conquered the giants, 
Then the land had rest from war. I want to identify four transferable behaviors, four things in Caleb's life that we need to begin living in our life. It's not enough to read the Bible and just say, I understand it better. It's not enough to read the Bible and just say, okay, that's what I understand about God. We've got to say, this is what I understand about God, and this is what I understand about his purposes, and this is how I engage it in my life. So I want to talk about how to engage it in your life. And the first thing I see in Caleb's life is courage. We see it surface first back in Numbers 13 when the people are rebelling against God. They're saying, we can't, we can't, we can't, we can't. And Caleb and Joshua know they can. And you'd think it would be Joshua, the guy that God anoints as leader who might step up first. But it's not. It's Caleb. And in the face of everybody who's saying we can't, he steps forward and says, yes, we can. We can do it with God's help. People pick up stones to stone him. And he says, we can do it with God's help. He has incredible courage. And he calls the people for engagement with the task, even though they don't listen. That's what we see in Caleb. The question I have for you is, where have you been afraid to engage God's plan for your life? Now, maybe you don't feel as if God has called you to a promised land. I think you're wrong. I think he calls every one of us forward into new territory, into new blessing, into new obedience, into new hope, into new significance. That's what God calls us. But that requires change. And I'm guessing in your life, there's been some place that God has nudged you about changing. And there's part of you that sometimes resists. And you resist because you're afraid. You're afraid of the cost of change. You're afraid of the cost of obedience. You're afraid of responses from people around you. Perhaps he's called you to be a better witness, to invite people to church, to stand up for Jesus in the marketplace. And you say, but what would people think of me? What if it costs too much? Or maybe there's a habit in your life that gets in the way of your faith or gets in the way of your witness or gets in the way of your health. Maybe you, there's a comfort food that you go too far too often and your body shows the effect and God's saying, you know, you, you ought to discipline yourself there. Maybe you're over drinking or maybe you're over something. And you say, well, if I'd say yes to God in this and develop a new discipline, what would I do when I feel uncomfortable or what would I do when I feel overwhelmed and you're afraid of what that might look like? Maybe there's some area of serving in the church that causes you some fear. Maybe it challenges your comfort. You say, I like being comfortable. And he's calling me to service. What would, be, what would it be like to really have to depend on God? Do you know such a place in your life? Is there anywhere in your life right now where you know God has nudged you and said, step out in obedience, and you've said no or not now, which is just another way of saying no? Because if you're saying not now, it's no for now. It's just delayed obedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Would you have the courage to engage? God challenges you to courageously engage where he nudges you so you don't miss his blessing. So that's the first thing I see in Caleb. He was courageous, and I think it's something we need to be. Secondly, I see humility. Every time you see, the very first time you see Caleb's name mentioned is when he is identified as a leader in the tribe of Judah, when Moses picks him to be a spy. 
Well, he was a leader. And then he was a hero of the faith in many ways when he said, we can do this, we can go into the promised land. And then he disappears for 45 years. Joshua becomes prominent. Joshua succeeds Moses. Joshua leads the Israelites. Joshua is raised up by God. And Caleb is somebody you don't see anything about. Now, it's always a little dangerous in Scripture to, to make an argument from the absence of something, but I'm going to do it in this case be, because I think it's really true. Be, it, it's accurate. When Caleb shows up at age 85 and says to Joshua, I'm ready, I'll take the mountain, Joshua's response was not, well, where have you been? Joshua's response was, well, it's about time you came around and got on board. Joshua just sort of acknowledged, okay, of course, Caleb, you can do it. Because for the last five years, as they've been going through the land, Caleb, just like everybody else, had been a soldier, a warrior a participant, a partner, someone who would make a difference. He didn't say, hey, what about me? How come Joshua got raised up and I didn't? He took a second place, a third place. That takes some humility. I mean, he paid the price. He'd done everything Joshua had done. But Joshua got the boss position and he didn't. And he was okay with it. That's what I see in Caleb. Question I'd ask you is where do you need to deal with pride in your life? Where does humility need to be developed in your life? Now, some of you are sitting there going, you know what, John, I think I'm okay with this. You know, I'm, I'm not really all that cocky. I'm not walking around going, I'm all that. I want to give you a simple test here to see whether maybe there's an area of humility that needs to be worked on that you haven't really thought about. How do you respond? when you don't like something? How do you respond when you disagree with something? How do you respond when you express an opinion and people seem to listen to somebody else and ignore your opinion? Do you grumble? Do you complain? Does your attitude begin to go south? If you do, I think you need to do some business with God because what you're saying is my opinion is more important than everybody else's and they're not listening to me and humph, 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 harumph, harumph, harumph. Do you know anybody who actually says harumph? <laughs> this is a lesson I learned watching my dad. My dad was a great leader. He was district superintendent of the Wesleyan Church in Illinois for 19 years. And the Wesleyan Church is the denominational tribe that we're part of. And in 19 years, uh, this small district built 19 church buildings and parsonages, started lots of churches, had no resources. My dad was the district superintendent responsible for starting the Heritage Church in 1964, 50 years ago. He's a great man, great leader. He was able to inspire people to causes beyond themselves. And then at some point in his life, he decided that he was done being district superintendent and he stepped back into the role of local church pastor. And the district elected a new district superintendent and they elected my dad's best friend, Forrest. He was so close to our family. I mean, he was Uncle Forrest to us and to his kids, my dad was Uncle Art. I mean, we were that close. But all leaders lead a little bit differently from other leaders. And Forrest began to make some decisions in his leadership and he would change some other ways that my dad did things. 
You know what my dad did? My dad processed it as a criticism. He processed it as an insult. He processed it as a bit of a repudiation of his leaderships. Instead of just saying Forrest is different, he processed it as Forrest saying that art was wrong. Dad dealt with insecurity. And dad occasionally uh, would grumble to me, complain to me. And I remember watching that and saying, instead of my dad just saying, Forrest is different and I'll follow him with everything I've got, he felt attacked. And I said, I'll never do that. And that was a decision I made in my 20s that I am now learning to live in my 60s. Because Sean is a great leader. I have massive confidence in him. But he leads a bit differently than I do. And he comes in, and, and I will tell you, I am very aware of the holes in Heritage Church, where we're strong, where we're not strong. But, but when somebody comes in from the outside and begins to identify those things, it feels threatening to you. You go, well, how have I screwed this up? <laughs> and, and, and it's one thing for you to know, and it's another thing for somebody else to know and engage and say, let's get, make this better. And I'm cheering for that, and we need to get better. But, but the human side of you can feel as if it's an if you're under attack, and Sean's done nothing about that. It's nothing to do with him. It's everything to do with me. And I've had to process this humility decision that I made 35 years ago now as I live it out. And it's appropriate to do. And I do this because that's what Christ followers are called to do. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And I don't know about you, I want grace, not opposition. So let's go back to you for a moment. Grumbling is a sign of pride. Will you repent of that? Will you lay it at the foot of the cross? Will you allow your preferences to be set aside in order to follow a, a, a leader who's taking us into a great cause to do great things for God? Will you commit yourself anew, not to Sean's cause, but to the cause of Christ? Where Sean is leading, I will. Hope you do too. Third thing I see in Caleb's life is godliness. A few minutes ago, I asked you to underline that statement about Caleb, about following the Lord wholeheartedly. Literally in the Hebrew, it's he went after God fully. He went after God fully. Eight times in the Hebrew Old Testament, that phrase, went after God fully, shows up. Eight times. Of those eight times, six of them are said about Caleb. Now, that's a pretty significant statistic. Six different times. Caleb's not like other people. He goes after God fully. The first time, it's God who says it. Numbers 14, 24, because my servant Caleb has a different spirit than others and follows me wholeheartedly, I'll bring him into the land. Could God say that about you? Are you fully committed to Christ? The word fully is an operational word there. I loved Sean's sermon last week as he called us to purity. We've been, each of us, quoting A.W. Tozer over the last weeks. Tozer said there's no limit to what God can do through us if we are a yielded, surrendered, committed, and purified people. But if we're impure, 
if we're willing to put up with spiritual junk in our lives, if we're half-hearted and lukewarm, we'll limit what God can do. May not keep us out of heaven. God's grace is amazing. But it will affect our significance. It'll affect the difference we make. You know, there's a verse in Revelation right towards the end that says in the day when we stand before God, he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. Now, I know I always used to process that. I always used to process that as, you know, the, the pain of dying is so great, we'll be crying and, and all that kind of stuff. And he'll just wipe away the tears and say, now, 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 that's okay. And that's probably part of it. But as I've walked my life journey and my service journey as I realize I have less left of it than I have lived so far. I wonder if there might be a second aspect there. I wonder if part of those tears are you standing there at your day of judgment and God's reviewing your life and he's looking at sin where you knew better and he's looking at places of service where you didn't step it up. He's looking at opportunities that you missed and you're seeing them too, and you're seeing them now in the light of God's great love and God's perfect sacrifice, and you begin to weep at what could have been if only you had been fully engaged, fully committed, fully surrendered. And as you weep, he'll put his arms around you, and he'll wipe the tears away. But we will enter eternity in eternal reward, limited, hampered, because of what could have been and was not when we did not fully engage ourselves. So I ask you, what do you really need to surrender to God? What do you need to give him? If I were to hold up a spiritual mirror and ask what in you doesn't look like Jesus, would there be anything you'd say? And why not lay that at the foot of the cross today? To, be all, to take all that you know of yourself and give it to all that you know of God. Godliness. It's the fourth thing I see in Caleb's life, and that is engagement. Caleb comes to Joshua and asks for permission to attack the hill country. Now, in case you missed it before, I want to clarify it again so you don't miss it now. They explored the land and they found this mountainous territory, this hilly country, and and, and there were fortified cities there, and they were populated by at least some giants. They said, we, set, we, we looked like grasshoppers in their eyes. And there's no way we can defeat them. And for five years, they'd been avoiding that territory. But now, now Caleb says, it's time to not have that in the back of our mind as that constant area of defeat. They're going to get us. They're going to get us. They're going to get us. It's time for us by God's power to get them. I'm not giving up. That's what he says. I'm not giving up. I'm ramping up. I'm, I'm fully engaged. Question for you. What's your level of engagement in God's causes? What's your level of engagement? This is a really important question. Heritage is a big church. In the last 40 years, we've had a, an amazing privilege. It's 40 years ago right now, 41 years ago right now, that I first began to engage with the leadership of Heritage Church about coming here. 
Our first Sunday, there were 24 people. It, that's not a number you want. Unless the, well, the previous week they'd had 15, so that seemed like a big growth. 24 people. And today, if it weren't a weekend where we had snow again, we say Heritage is a church of about 3,000. You go 24 to 3,000, wow. That's impressive. When you look at statistics, we're one of the largest churches in the Quad Cities, maybe the largest. You look nationwide, we're in the top one quarter of 1% of all churches. And if we're not careful, it might be easy to sit back and go, wow, we're big. Look what God's done. I want to talk to you about a mountain. We may be a church of 3,000. But there is still a mountain in our territory, and that's 200,000 people who don't yet know Jesus, who live in the Quad City area. 200,000 people that if they died tonight would not likely spend eternity in heaven. How in the world can we be impressed by what we have done when the need is so great. How can we rest? How can we stop? How can we not engage? You see, you know some of those people. You live next door to some of those people. You're married to some of those people. Your family members, your coworkers are some of those people. And you are the connecting point for them. We must be engaged. Now, I, I will tell you, we're a big church and it's easy to sit back and let somebody else do it. The, your, your friends and family and neighbors can't afford that. Now, I know some of you, some of you quite honestly think Heritage is big and maybe big enough. Do you know the first time I heard this church is big enough? We were 100 people. And some people who've been with us since we were 20 people just... Every time church grows, it changes. The change was too much. We're big enough at 100. I heard it at 150. I heard it at 200. I heard it at 400. I heard it at 500. I heard it at 1,000. And I will tell you, as long as there's one person in our community who doesn't know Jesus Christ to say here, our church still isn't big enough. There's still room for one more. Because I refuse, I refuse to accept the reality that it's okay for people who found Jesus to look at people who don't know Jesus and say, you know what, I'm comfortable in my church and as far as I'm concerned, you can go to hell. Because that's what we say when we say we're big enough. That's what we say when we say I've done my part and I'm not going to do anymore. Some of you say you've done your part. Some of you say it's time for somebody else to do your part. Listen, listen. If you're a Christ follower and you're still breathing, still in need of oxygen on this earth, you still have a role to play. Now, that might seem odd to you coming out of the lips of somebody who's stepping back from senior leadership and, and, and you know, moving Sean forward. Say, John, if you really meant that, you wouldn't be stepping back. No, it's because I mean it that I'm stepping into a different role. Because I have a couple years of headroom and leadership left, but Sean has 15 or 20 years of leadership left, and we need the kind of energy that he brings and the kind of passion that he brings and the kind of zeal he brings, the kind of idea he brings. We need somebody who can lead long-term. And so I step into a supporting role. It's not that I'm stepping back from ministry. It's that I'm stepping back from the senior role, leadership. And I don't know what role you play, but I know it needs to be a role that says, I'll do something, sign me up. God, 
has done great things in this church. Why would we think he wants to change now? He still wants to do great things, but he wants us to do them for him. He will empower us. So I ask you specifically, at whatever campus you're sitting, wherever you're sitting in that campus, what will be your role in engaging and making a difference for Jesus? Do you need to step up in, in, in ministry in a given area? Do you need to give more? Do you need to pray more? Do you need to serve more? I do know this, just sitting isn't enough. I know that. What would God say about you right now? What would he say about your investment? The kingdom of God really advances as the army of God, his people, engage to take it forward. God's power is there, but he works through us when we say, I'm all in. And that brings me to the so what moment of this sermon. Let me go back to that story about the car I told you earlier. Patty had gone out to the dealership. She'd ordered all the kind of car with all the options and the bells and whistles that she wanted for me, thought I'd like. She'd made the deal. She'd signed the papers. I pulled up. The car was there. There was a bow on it. There was only one thing she had not done. She had not paid for it. And over the next three years, while it was my birthday present, I got to make the payments. <laughs> Some gifts are like that. They come with responsibility. Let me tell you something about God's gifts. God's gifts always come with responsibility. Grace is free. We're saved by grace. He puts his, our feet on the path to heaven by grace. But he says, I've created you to do good works. I've created you to do investment. I've created you for involvement. And here is my prayer for you. I've been praying for you this week. My prayer for you this week is not that you'll sit back and go, okay, Sean, prove to me that you can lead. My prayer is like Caleb. You'll step up and you'll go to the leader and you'll say, give me the mountain. I'm all in. I'm engaged because people still need Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we bow before you right now, humbly, in a time of change, dependent. We really do need you. We ask, Lord, that I pray that every single person who calls Heritage home will lean into the opportunity of change and service and ministry. I'm praying that 10 years from now, we'll look back and say, a church of 3,000, Wow, do you remember when we were that small? The 10,000 people will call here, it is their church home. But we'll still be engaged because there's still 190,000 who don't know Jesus. And as long as there's one person who doesn't know Jesus, our job's not done. We commit ourselves to that in Jesus' name. Amen.